Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is co-founder of Sonarworks, Martin Papellis. First of all, is it time to raise streaming prices? Just about all music streaming services are priced at $9.99 a month. Now, with inflation at about 7% just in the last 12 months, that's now worth $8.09. And that's great if you're a user, but if you're a creator, if you're a songwriter, if you're an artist, well, you're making less as a result. So you would think it would be a good time to raise prices. Netflix just did it. If they got away with it, couldn't Spotify? Spotify has been at the same $9.99 price since 2011, so one would think it's about time. Well, there's a little problem in that they're not allowed because of the label agreements that they sign. Now, in order for them to get the catalog that they use, they have to sign a licensing agreement with every major record label, as well as Merlin, who represents indie artists. And this basically locked them into $9.99 a month for the average tier that we all buy. Now, of course, there's the $14.95 one that is used for families. And then we have the $19.99 super tier for high-res music. And there might be a student tier at $4.95, $5.95. But that $9.99 tier is still there. And they can't really change it. So... What if the labels suddenly said, okay, boys, everybody change? Well, if all of the music streaming services suddenly went to $14.95 a month, let's say, that might be a problem in the fact that there might be some people call that collusion or price fixing. So what is collusion? Well, it's a collaborative agreement that's usually secret, and it's amongst rivals to prevent competition through any kind of deceptive means in order to gain a market advantage. So, in fact, there can be a lot of lawsuits to come and say, hey, you guys are colluding, and as a result, put your prices back. Now, on the other hand, if the label suddenly said, okay, you guys can do exactly what you want, and Spotify raised to $14.95 a month, but the other music services didn't, and they could get away with it, like Amazon Music, like YouTube Music, like Apple Music, hey, they got big pockets behind them. So it doesn't matter if this is a loss leader for them, but for Spotify, who's never made money, this is a big deal. And of course, there's no differences between the various services. They all have the same music. So where would you go? You go to the cheapest one. In the meantime, we have artists and songwriters that are saying, I'd sure like to make more money from this. And the only way they'll be able to do it is if the prices go up. So, this is a very interesting situation. We should see some movement in this this year. There's nothing imminent that anybody knows about. That being said, inflation is really pushing everything hard. So, we may see streaming music prices, something that changes very soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club, along with What Makes a Song a Hit, Q&A sessions with me, and advice sessions every month. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. 
Now let's talk about the cybernetic drummer, Jason Barnes. Jason Barnes lost his right hand when he was electrocuted at work. And he was a drummer and a piano player, so as you can imagine, this really hit him deeply. Then his drum teacher introduced him to Gil Weinberg, who is the founding director of the Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology and also an eminent authority on artificial intelligence. Together, they developed a bionic prosthetic tailor-made for Barnes so he could play drums. This bionic arm actually holds two drumsticks, one that translates Barnes' muscle movement and a second autonomous stick that's been trained by machine learning. As a result, Barnes now holds the world record as the fastest drummer ever at 20 hits per second with each stick. And it goes a little bit further. He has various interchangeable hands, one that is so sensitive it even allows him to play piano. So AI is all over the place now, and it's really helping people that have disabilities. With AI machines, they can already paint like Rembrandt, they can write entire articles, they can improvise like John Coltrane. At the same time, blind people can learn to see with bionic eyes, and amputees can run and jump on cyborg legs. So we're making great advances in this. Now getting back to Barnes, his prosthetic arm, which sounds great, is owned by Georgia Tech, and the insurance company won't let him take it home. So he's actually doing a Kickstarter to help him build a brand new one. We live in a fantastic world, and Jason Barnes is one example. My guest this week is Martin Popelis, who's one of the founders of Sonarworks. The company is one of the first to provide room and headphone calibration software that's within the reach of the average home studio owner. During the interview, we spoke about measurement mics and how they're all different, the company's consumer offerings, how to get the best results with Sonarworks, the difference between Sonarworks and room modeling, and much more. I spoke with Martins from a studio in Los Angeles that he was visiting. Give me some of your history before Sonarworks. What were you doing? All right. I was uh, generally, before Sonarworks, I uh, come from very much not from the music, uh, not from the music or audio engineering background as such. I have actually now, as I've been thinking back uh, and how it all started, I have remembered that actually the first money, I've kind of always been drawn to music more on the reproduction side than on the creation side. Like the first money I ever earned, I spent on buying a fancy set of uh, speakers and an amplifier. I was uh, running for a while in the high school, this uh, audio center that was basically taking care of the school's PAs and whatnot. And I've been trying to, actually I've been trying to solder an equalizer unsuccessfully and then i've been actually trying to build a software that does eq uh, on the first computer that i ever had a long time ago so i've been kind of really drawn into the audio technology for some reason but then basically right after high school i ended up on a very different trajectory in my life kind of uh, but it has been mostly entrepreneurial in many ways like i kind of started and built a couple of companies completely unrelated to uh, uh, completely unrelated to audio. And then uh, a time came when uh, me and uh, a friend of mine were looking for the next kind of project to start in the business area. And then we happened to come across uh, happened to come across a guy who had uh, put together like an uh, 
first prototype for what is now our speaker calibration software. And uh, we said, hey, that's that's a cool piece of technology. And uh, I was I, I liked audio in general. And uh, this other co-founder of ours also was very much into audio technology. We said, hey, cool, let's look into this. And then we started looking into it. And we thought, hey, there's really something there. And then uh, we kind of put together a vision and roadmap for what it might become. We pulled in some investors. And then a uh, <clears throat> number of years later, here we are. But So it's been kind of... Once we started SonarWorks as a uh, as a project, it has mainly been uh, kind of, and I think it has played in a lot of ways to our strength that we were kind of coming as outsiders to the world and we were not necessarily tied down by the tradition and the uh, kind of uh, old ways of uh, doing things. We could say, hey, it seems that here's a problem. It seems that this might be a solution. Let's figure out if we can kind of merge these two together. And uh, uh, to some extent, I think we've uh, been successful with that. How long did it take you from the very idea, the first idea of this, to actually coming to market? All in all, I think it was two years or so, but you have to take into account that in the first two years, the project was not like 100% funded and fueled by full-time people. I think kind of initially, this guy who put this first prototype together, it was like about a year, and then once we started then i think it took another year or so to kind of turn it into an actual turn it into an actual product so two year ish give me an idea about how it's changed from that first iteration of it until now the core of it that has remained is the idea that you really need to measure this area around the person uh, sitting rather than a single point measurement or rather than some other plane, this kind of, and that you really have to locate the microphone with each measurement so that the software can have itself like an acoustic map, not just some blind set of measurements. I think that is kind of the core idea that has survived from this first prototype to the last thing. But then uh, I think, on top of that, there have been a lot of uh, interface and kind of shaping the thing into a product that the user would actually use. I mean, the first prototype, you had to configure a lot of things that kind of you wouldn't necessarily know what those are and why would you have to work with them uh, as the user. And the first setup was also it needed all sorts of kind of uh, loopback cabling and uh, whatnot and it was just uh, more complicated so it was really closer to like a laboratory prototype it was proof of technology concept but it wasn't really a product like i remember first time it was now what was it like 2013 or something when we were uh, traveling around uh, la and kind of showing it to people and uh, gathering feedback then it was basically we had to run it on our computer we had to connect from our interface to their computer, and then we kind of uh, did all the kind of uh, did all the uh, measurement and the demonstration. But at that time, the plugin was like, uh, I think, a single checkbox uh, VST plugin uh, designed or like not designed, but basically put together by a developer. So by the time when we were finished, it was like, okay. This is amazing, guys. How can I use it in my workflow? Uh, we have a VST plugin. Oh, sorry, I can only take AUs. And so it was really kind of not a product. So I think uh, one of the one of the things that we've really taken seriously in our product development philosophy is that we really I kind of have this anal analogy. Like 
the in the photography world there is like uh, photoshop which is really like an expert tool with like uh, thick books that kind of teach you how to do it once you master it then you can really unleash your creativity and do whatever uh, but you really have to know how to use the tool and then there is instagram right where you kind of just take a picture don't need to know anything very good chance that the picture is going to be pretty right out of the box and then you can maybe tweak it a little bit and then you're done so we're trying really hard to be this uh, instagram of room tuning rather than the photoshop of room tuning because we believe that the majority of the uh, music creators out there really wish to spend their time and energy into the creativity and into the actual music creation rather than geeking out about uh, uh, room acoustics and uh, uh, frequency response curves of that thing. So we've really tried to minimize, like, like to make it as smooth and easy as possible for the user. I mean, there is some uh, uh, pretty cool technology below the surface that actually runs it. And it's not always that easy to make something that just works out of the box, but we're trying to approach it to, yeah, as, so that it's minimum user interaction. You can just do a few very reasonable steps that you can understand and then just, okay, good. So uh, that's sort of the origin story. I go way back with professional room tuners. When I first got to LA in 1980, I was lucky enough to hang out with Steve Brandon at Cherokee and, and George Augsburger, who kind of invented the whole thing. And they would do it with an old white third octave passive EQ. And it would take at least half a day for them to do it. But it was remarkable, the, the results. The results were really good. But And again, they had to graph everything by hand, you know, each measurement. But it worked. But what's interesting, now that I think about it, they weren't listening to different parts of the room. And I think that's really the secret, because if you just put your mic in one area, the sweet spot, that doesn't work necessarily. You, you need more measurements, right? I mean, a uh, couple of things uh, to unpack here, I guess. I really hope that by no means uh, myself or we as a company are coming off as somehow denying or diminishing people who have been or still are tuning, uh, tuning rooms. I think they're doing a great job and there is no denying that uh, such a thing is. I think it's about, uh, like, trend-wise, I think it's kind of uh, also no denying that the kind of, like, 20, 30 years ago, the big studios, I mean, the music industry was different, right? The, there were the big studios, there was a lot more money coming in into music production, and the big studios could eventually afford to bring in, like, uh, golden ear experts who would then tune the room and make it be good by the time the artists arrived. By now, I think the trend is very heavily towards the big studios generally living through a hard time and everybody setting up something either in a small room or at home. And it's kind of democratizing in many ways for the good and the bad aspects that come with it. And these smaller studio people who work from their room in their home or something like that, they just don't have the means to afford to bring in a golden air expert. So it's not accessible at that scale to kind of bring in somebody as a physical person. So I think that, but, but, but the need for accurate sound is still there. So that's one thing. And then the technology and the software capabilities and the kind of uh, granularity of uh, digital DSP, I think has also a lot, has evolved a lot with the processing power and availability and everything. So 
I think that trend that, hey, we're moving from like majority of rooms being tuned by experts to software handling this, I think is kind of just inevitable with the changes in the market structure. Uh, now it comes when it comes to the single versus multi-point measurement. I mean, if you refer to people tuning the room by ear using their expert judgment, essentially, I mean, the most of the issue that we're solving with this multi-point measurement is that basically human beings do not hear sound, as you probably know, the same way the microphone does, right? If you measure something here, move it a couple of inches, move it a couple of inches, you're going to get like three completely different measurements, frequency response-wise. It's not your experience as a human being that as you move your head a little bit, the sound changes a lot. It's because your brain is essentially this uh, powerful DSP that's kind of integrating and calculating all sorts of things from the actual inputs of your ears to your brain's perception of the sound. And that has to be factored in when you're uh, doing something like a room tuning. So if you're tuning it by ear, then you kind of have that taken into account. You're perceiving the room as the human being, and then you tune it until you as a human being say, I think it's good. If you're measuring by the microphone, then you can't just go by a single point measurement because depending exactly on where you put it, you're going to get a very different result and which one is the right one. So we've tried to, in our software, to mimic this way how humans perceive sound. So we're measuring this area. We're making sure the software kind of understands the acoustics of the area also as a, as a map. And then it kind of can build this sort of smart average of everything that's going on in the area around where the engineer is sitting. And we find that it uh, more often than not really translates well into the perception of flat sound in that area. So. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So, so far, everything you've done has been in stereo, right? Have you done anything in, you know, 5.1 or immersive audio or any plans to go there? Very much plans, yes. Nothing public to announce uh, yet, but uh, we are, uh, yeah, seriously looking in that that direction because, uh, yeah, immersive audio seems to be the, the big trend. I would kind of, I think, What's also maybe interesting to mention in this context, we started with the speakers, but then we quickly realized that uh, headphones are really uh, also a thing in the studio. And when we started off, I really remember talking to a lot of studio engineers and I was talking to one friend uh, to one friend uh, who was saying, hey, yeah, I was uh, mixing something like on the weekend and my kid was sleeping at home. So I ended up mixing on my headphones. And then the next day I went into the studio and I put it on and it was complete trash. It didn't translate. So I had to throw everything out. No, no, no. You can't mix on headphones. That's kind of something that we don't do in the studio world. And I was coming from outside, just observing how people think about things. And then uh, at some point we said, Hey, why don't we try doing, why don't we try doing this thing on the headphones as well? So we played around and we found that we can actually using some measurement ideas that we had, we can actually measure and calibrate the headphone to sound very close to how flat speakers in a flat room would sound frequency response wise of course there are other things about headphone sound and then we started also building this uh headphone uh, calibration thing and i think uh, that's kind of I, I really clearly clearly remember that that was one of the early highlights in our history where we kind of we put this headphone calibration out and i think some of our guys were also talking about it in like gear slots and uh, whatever and then it was, I think, May or something when uh, Sound on Sound came out and we were on the cover saying headphone revolution. It was nothing we had arranged or even pushed for. It's like, 
whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I mean, and by now it kind of feels when you talk to people that, uh, hey, yeah, sure, kind of there are people who mix on headphones. Some people do, some people don't, but it's kind of, it's a thing. And I think like 10 years ago, it was not a thing. And uh, I kind of feel that uh, we definitely uh, uh, played some role in accelerating that uh, that trend. And now multi-channel, I think, is the, yeah, the, the next uh, frontier in a way. But even so, binaural is very important for mixing in immersive audio, Dolby Atmos, and many mixes start off that way. As a matter of fact, it's funny because I talk to a lot of mixers who are doing this, and the big problem is, okay, it's a big setup, it's an expensive setup to do to, to put all your speakers together, and most of them say, yeah, but for the first three or four months, I just did it on headphones and it worked out fine. I predict that a lot of people will be doing this more and more on headphones, I think, as we go along. It's something I've been thinking of quite a bit about uh, lately. And yeah, it also seems that uh, it might be that this immersive mixing, a lot of that will be done on headphones rather than on like... 916 or whatever number of uh, speaker channels so that's yeah. an uh, yeah that's an interesting uh, question how it how will it unfold let's talk about the measurement mic that you use sure and i have an, a number of measurement microphones that's been sent to me they all look the same i don't think yeah. they are <laughs> <laughs> am i wrong or, or are they all pretty much the same you are and you are not i have yours right here as a matter of fact so let me tell you about the measurement microphone yeah I think how, how I think about the measurement microphones, there is like the uh, budget measurement microphones, which are like sub $100 measurement microphones or something like that. And then there are, the, let's say, the mid-tire measurement microphones and then some super premium, like mid-tire ones being some kind of mid-grade uh, Earthworks models or something like that. For the budget level measurement microphones, well, there are two levels. We've been kind of looking at those mics uh, quite a bit. I mean... Most of them are uh, manufactured somewhere in Asia, right? And then, uh, although they look very similar, sometimes their internals are kind of uh, really not that good, kind of so, but uh, that's a separate story. It's kind of not how, I mean, the internals are not all equal, and sometimes they are pretty decent in the way they've kind of been engineered and built, and sometimes they're quite horrible. So first, We've made sure that our microphone doesn't have the horrible internals. It has the uh, very reasonably good internals. But then the other aspect of the microphone is if you're talking about these budget microphones, then uh, really if you measure their frequency response, then it has a spread. Like if you take 100 of those microphones and you measure all of them, then they are not exactly the same. There is a variance between them. And uh, what we found with these uh, microphones is that their uh, the variance can go up to like uh, six dB corridor or something. So it's some some shape within a six dB corridor if you just take it outside of the box. And then we've also investigated like some of these uh, suppliers also say, hey, we can calibrate the mics for you. And we've looked at those curves and they. Uh, raised a lot of questions about what those curves really represent and then they sent us some pictures of how they do the calibration and it was like okay now we understand what's going Th thank you we'll not need your calibration profiles anymore uh, so really what makes our microphone stand out is that we have uh, built our own kind of uh, tooling and process we are individually calibrating each of those microphones 
So without the calibration, if you just take, it looks like a measurement microphone, but sometimes it is if you're lucky to have the flattish one, but sometimes it really isn't. Uh, and then uh, with the calibration, it really kind of makes the microphone punch on another level in terms of accuracy. So we really, each of our microphones has a unique uh, identifier code, and that code kind of comes with an attached individual calibration profile for that microphone, and we can really vouch for that calibration because we're really kind of doing it manually for each and every uh, microphone. So we know the process it's going through and we know kind of um, what's going on there. Yeah, that makes sense. A calibrated microphone for a calibrated room, sure. Yeah, I mean, eventually, if you think about it, if you're calibrating your room, then it's really only going to be as accurate as your microphone, right? Because that's the ultimate reference point that the software has for understanding what's going on in your room. Let's talk about your calibrated headphones. I saw that you're actually offering those now. Does that mean that you used calibrated headphones, you don't need software anymore? Oh, uh, when you say we offer calibrated headphones now, are you referring to the individually calibrated headphones that we sell to be used together with the reference software? Or are you talking about the consumer-facing true wireless type of headphones uh, that you might, might also have heard about? Well, I'm not sure because I saw it on your website. Okay, so there are two sides to what we're doing. Perhaps we'll go into this in more detail further in the conversation. But so we have this uh, music creator-facing side of SonarWorks, and then we recently started having also the consumer-facing side of SonarWorks. Now, if we talk about the music creator-facing side of SonarWorks, then we have, uh, like, the core thing that we have is this... Uh, what is now called sound ID reference software, which is effectively this software for calibrating the speakers and also for calibrating the headphones. Now, in that domain, you can have two types of calibrated headphones. You can go with an average profile, which means that we've uh, measured a bunch of headphones from that particular build and model, and we've come up with an average curve. And so if you have like a Audio Technica headphone, you can find that particular headphone in our catalog set it as a profile in the reference software and uh, mix away and it's uh, going to improve things for you. Uh, but then if you want to be really accurate about your monitoring, then we say, hey, you can also get individually calibrated headphones from us. And there is a number of like a selected number of models we're offering there where we would have taken that particular pair of a headphone, measured it, labeled it with an individual ID, much like the, uh, much like the microphone, and then you get that headphone, and then you get your individual profile, which is then more accurate to the particular pair of headphones, and it's a stereo profile, so it's as accurate as it gets uh, in terms of calibration. You still have to use it with our studio software, all right? So we are offering headphones for the improved accuracy of headphone uh, monitoring, but it still only works in conjunction with our sound ID reference software. Now, on the consumer side, we've built some things where uh, we've built some kind of true wireless headphones now where you can uh, find your perfect personal profile, which is how we think about the consumer world, and then upload it into the Bluetooth chipset of that consumer headphone, and then it just lives there, and you don't need additional software except for our mobile app to maybe kind of tweak and configure it. But that's a consumer story. That's not a sound creation context product. But wait, let's talk about that for a second. Is that a B2B thing that you're doing, or is it um, a consumer that would do that? To build this product, we're, we're dealing with B2B. So we're partnering up with the manufacturers to bring 
sound ID into their headphone uh, kind of uh, product. But then uh, eventually it's a consumer product where the consumer buys a particular pair of headphones and says, hey, nice headphones. Oh, there is this Sonarworks feature in it. So I know that for many manufacturers, software manufacturers especially, that's kind of the um, golden ring. And try to get other manufacturers to license their technology and put it in everything, like Dolby did or DTS. Well, we're kind of, uh, yeah, gathering uh, inspiration from there, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good place, definitely. So if you were to recommend to somebody, that I'm talking on creator end now, the best way to set up their room, let's just take the lowest common denominator. There's somebody in... They're in the bedroom. It's the worst possible, and maybe it's square, which is, you know, terrible. What would you recommend? How, how would you tell them to go about it to get the best results? I mean, if it's a particularly terrible room, then uh, ultimately I would suggest them to think about mixing on the headphones. It will probably, like, it depends, of course, on what budget you have. But if you have really tight budget, I would, I guess, still recommend thinking about working on headphones. Then uh, from there on, I guess the first, I mean, really depends on the, really depends on the budget, but uh, no, kind of, uh, but I would get a decent pair of speakers, then probably invest a couple of hundred or a thousand dollars if you can put it together into room tuning. And then from that, and then on top of that, I would recommend them get uh, like a Sonarworks room calibration, uh, room calibration software. Because I mean, if you're like really talking about a glass cube, then uh, Sonarworks will not save you. Unfortunately, physics is still there at the end of the day. So depends on how extreme horrible you're talking, but so definitely first you need some speakers if you want to work on speakers at all, then I guess some room tuning makes sense uh, to take care of the like critical minimum items and try to set it up symmetrically, of course, etc. But then at some point, like we've been in these situations where people have even like uh, $5,000 pair of uh, speakers that they're mixing on and they have a okay-ish room and then they say and then kind of we come along and we demonstrate what we can do with the room calibration and they go, oh, you know what? I was all the time thinking that my speakers are the problem and that I need to sell these speakers and still sell some additional gear and get myself like a $10,000 pair of speakers uh, I guess I won't be doing that because what you just did is kind of just uh, above what I would have expected. So I think kind of sooner than some people think in this trajectory of investing and building your studio, a software solution like ours, kind of the return per dollar in terms of sound improvement is really the best return that you can have. And then additional bonuses once you put like Sonarworks in your system, then you really have this quick and uh, consistent way of measuring your speakers in your room. So you can really measure it, see the curve, then maybe think about why it is like the way it is. And if you can do something about it and then try to do something in the room, remeasure it. And since the measurement only takes like 20 minutes, then you can kind of quickly start iterating based on the data rather than some... Uh, 
just intellectual thinking about uh, what your room sounds or doesn't sound like. So that's kind of additional thing that you could do. Yeah, I'm, what I always say is you, you can't mix it if you can't hear it. That's very true, sure. <laughs> there are many competitors now. Sonarworks was the first, I would say, to do this, do the, do it well. And now there are many competitors. Most of them take a different approach, though. The approach being, let's model a room, and you can be in this particularly good-sounding mix room. The one I'm thinking of is the Waves Abbey Road Studio 3, for instance. And there's a you know ocean way and everything they do. That's different than what you do. You basically say, I'm going to take your room, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to figure out what the problems are, and we're going to electronically figure this out better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever consider going the other way, taking a, a really good room? Yep. Yes, we have been thinking about it and uh, quite clearly made a decision that we don't think it's right to go in the direction of modeling rooms. I mean, it, uh, it certainly has its benefit. And uh, I think it certainly, I guess, also quenches some sort of curiosity in people about, hey, how would Abbey Road sound like? But at the end of the day, I mean, in the bigger picture of what we're after, Sonarworks is uh, we are. Uh, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, we're after the uh, quest for the holy grail of sound, and we try to approach it kind of as much rationally and as much data by data driven uh, kind of approaches as we can. Uh, but so it's a bigger story about the music creator and the listener and. What sound does the cons- does the creator need, and what sound the consumer needs, and how to arrive at the best possible sound? But if we focus on the studio angle, then uh, I really believe that the flat is the best eventual target for the studios to gravitate to. Uh, for one, yeah, I mean, flat is a misnomer in a way because if it's flat, it doesn't sound good. It has the you're talking about a a, a flat slope human audio slope that we're used to right because if the room is totally flat it usually doesn't sound good yeah and now we get into the kind of uh, area of the translation i mean whatever you do as an engineer in the room eventually you have to know how it translates to the outside world right yeah. so no matter what sound the engineer has in the room either it's flat or flattish or not flat at all I believe all of the engineers will care about how it sounds outside of the room and they will do some sort of routine to go and check and tune. So eventually it's still kind of you work through the room, but you have the outside world in mind and how it will translate. Yeah, okay, I get it. We're talking about the same thing, but in a different manner. So the question is kind of why flat? I think one of the uh, one of the reasons why flat is that... Uh, kind of all the bumps and peaks have all sorts of masking effects and it also kind of uh, yeah like if there is a bump in your bass then you're more likely to kind of put less bass than you would normally want to in your track and it will kind of be bass lean outside from the studio so kind of taking all that coloration out like has these psychoacoustic effects and it allows you to have a clearer picture of uh, what you are doing and in our by our data and also by my kind of or our kind of conversations as a team to a bunch of different engineers most of them still are after flat in their room i mean the average engine like the engineers are very well aware that outside the consumer doesn't like flat so they're not expecting the consumer to listen on flat 
but as a professional, they kind of want this flat. Yeah. Well, okay. You're talking about flat in terms of we're going to take all of the irregularities in the response and we're going to flatten them out. That's what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is yes that yeah. if you send a signal into the system that's kind of equally loud across all frequencies and then you measure what comes out then it's a straight curve rather than some wave and uh, we could mimic also how say abbey road sounds but uh, arguably i think that's kind of i mean if you get everybody to work on flat and it seems that most people want to work on flat then you get all sorts of beautiful collaboration effects where all, all of a sudden my room sounds as your room and we can discuss it over uh, we can discuss the mix over a zoom call Whereas if my room sounds as Abbey Roads and your room sounds like uh, uh, whatever Westlake Studios, then uh, we first need to figure out kind of uh, who's who's running what sound, and then uh, it's just kind of, I mean, everything beautifully converges towards flat, and you can I think kind of get a lot of people to work on that. If everybody gets a freedom to choose whatever studio sound, then it doesn't converge to anything, and then we're still in this random mess where everything sounds different. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Okay, so uh, one of the things I wasn't aware of is that you can set SonarWorks up as a system-wide app now, right? So it works on your your entire system rather than just on you know on an app by app basis. Yes, totally. I mean, it's uh, it has been like that particular feature. I think has been there uh, for some while already. We have uh, with a recent uh, bigger version changed. We've brought some. Uh, I think very nice improvements to it uh, and kind of it can now be part of even more complicated studio setups and we have more driver configurations that we support with this uh, system-wide application but uh, yes it's very much uh, very much is there okay last question then martins so this has been a journey for you putting sonarworks together from from nothing from an idea to where it is now what is the best piece of advice that you've learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you like one of the things that i've really uh i think kind of discovered is that uh persistence is really kind of the combination of vision and persistence can really do uh magic kind of it really kind of uh, especially in the early days there was quite a bit of uh, resistance that we were meeting with what we were doing, but it was kind of, hey, no, let's let's keep trying, kind of, uh, we really believe that we're onto something here. And uh, eventually, I think that approach paid off, so I would definitely, definitely subscribe to the point that, like, yeah, persistence is really important if you're trying to bring about something new and unusual. You can find out more about Sonarworks at sonarworks.com. That's Sonarworks. S-O-N-A-R-W-O-R-K-S dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.